Father, take my words and speak with them. Take our minds and think with them. And take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. For Jesus' sake. Amen. About 30 years ago, I attended my first tailgate party. It was a baseball game of the Pittsburgh Pirates. It was the old Three Rivers Stadium, and it was a blast. There were about 40 parishioners. Somebody went down early and obtained, you know, so many parking places. We were three hours before the game. Uh, we had Frisbee competition with ourselves. Presbyterians were next to us. We had a, a tag uh, uh, football uh, game against them. Uh, and then we had hamburgers and hot dogs, and it was wonderful. Then we went in and saw the game, and sitting immediately behind our crowd was a fan. I mean, I don't know about other places and other cities, but the people in Pittsburgh love their teams. And this guy was bare-chested, you know, from the waist up. He had a very heavy chest, but he had shaved it so that it looked like there were eyebrows here. I won't say what part of the body here was managing for the eyes. He had a mustache and a beard, and his belly button was the mouth. And he would sit there, and he could act in a certain way that made it look like the mouth was talking. And somebody liked this, and so they put the camera on it, and so he was up on that, you know, two, three-story uh, 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 showing across the field, and we were on national television, and of course, since our church was right in front of him, every, we all ended up getting on the national news and waving, and it was awesome. Fast forward to the next day, Sunday morning, we're in church, and after the service, Three people came up to me, very concerned, Father Brad, because it was reported three women had raised their hands like this during one of the praise songs, and two men had done so. And you know, fanaticism is a dangerous thing in the church. Now compare this to events. There was passion for both events, passion for the team, passion for the worship of our Lord. And yet one was strongly identified simply as a fan, and the other one was identified as a fanatic. You'll be interested to know the word fan actually derives from the word fanatic. But which of those two might be a little bit over the top, and which was innocent? We all recognize that passions are powerful things, but are passions good or are they evil? Or can they sometimes be one and sometimes the other? Listen to what James says in his epistle reading today. You have it in your bulletin. Look at it there, verses 1 through 3. He writes, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Passions are a problem. Uh, I was in a fraternity my years uh, at the university, and my fraternity brothers certainly had strong 
passions, passions about all sorts of things. And I recognize sometimes those passions got out of control and created enormous problems. But this is an old story. There was an East Indian prince named Siddhartha back in the 6th century BC, and he saw passions in his time. Even within his own family, there were brothers and cousins trying to get ahead one another, even sometimes having an assassination or a murder take place. There were other princelings and, and heads of lesser states around who were fighting, and they wanted this village and this city, and they were grabbing this and they were grabbing that. And he decided the problem behind this, somewhat like James is saying, was passions. And the solution, therefore, was simply let the passions go. You can't kill the passions, they're there, but just let them die off along the way. Uh, and that was his approach. You'll be interested to know that the word passion in Greek is the word pathos, and if you have the negation of any word in Greek, it's an A in front of it, like theos and atheist. Well, here they had pathos, and therefore a pathos, which gives birth to our word apathy. Apathy is to be without a passion about something. This Siddhartha, this prince, went on to be known as the Enlightened One, or in his language, the Buddha. And the beginning of the teaching of Buddhism is, let the passions go. Other philosophies, other civilizations have had that approach. The Roman Stoics of the 5th century B.C. to the 2nd century B.C. wanted to be without the passions. Marcus Aurelius wrote frequently on that subject uh, in his time. Thomas Aquinas and Richard Baxter, I know you know who Thomas Aquinas is. Richard Baxter, you'll hear a lot from me, he was a brilliant English Puritan and Anglican. And both of them identified eight aspects of the soul. There's the understanding, there's the memory, there's the imagination, there's the spirit, there's reason, there's the will, the affections, and the passions. What do you do about the passions? Let's take an example of ambition. Ambition is one of the passions. Is it good or is it bad? Are you ambitious? I hope so. I hope you're ambitious to raise good families and to worship God and to make this a better church and a better nation. The opposite of passions, and this is going back to the Greek language, is the word asadia. And we get in the Latin the word sloth. And sloth is not mere laziness, but a total disconnect with the aspect of the soul cause called the passions. Now, if you want a motto for asadia, here it is. And I hate this word. I did youth ministry for 11 years, and nothing pushed my button more than this word. I love my kids, but when they said this, whatever. I hate that word whatever, no passions, be mellow, be happy. Something unhealthy about that. Think of the Star Trek series. There's something very creepy about Mr. Spock. I mean, here was one story where there's a, somebody's inventing a black hole and it's going to eat up a third of the universe. And uh, 
Mr. Spock, Mr. Spock says, uh, well, Captain Kirk, uh, I, by my recollection, my calculations, there are a trillion, trillion people will die in this black hole. And then you get Bones, you know, Dr. McCoy, who says, these are people, they're dying out there. How can you be so uncaring? So you get extreme passion and no passion at all. And of course, you get Captain Kirk, who attends to both those realities, but brings it together and is able to resolve this in a way that is a good solution. Dorothy L. Sayers defines Acadian this way. She said, in the world, sloth calls itself tolerance, but in hell, it is called despair. It is the accomplice of all the other sins and perhaps their worst punishment. It is the sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, loves nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive only because there is nothing that it would die for. So the direction of the, the Buddha to simply let the passions go is not where the Christian should be going. What Aristotle says of one passion, anger, we can say of each and every one of the passions that it is good, but it must be qualified under five directions. It must be at the right time, against the right person, for the right reason, on the right occasion, and to the right degree. In other words, the passions are to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit and lived according to the rule of God. One of my favorite New Testament commentators is a fellow named William Barclay. I'm just curious, how many people have read William Barclay here? Not too many. He's a great man. I came out of Scotland. Uh, I have his New Testament series. And he quotes a lot of, from classical literature. The one he quotes more than anyone else is this analogy from Plato about the chariot with two horses. And one horse is calm and docile, and one horse is wild and furious, and you, the will, the, the person, controls this chariot and tries to drive it. But, you know, you might run into the ditch or run off the cliff if you don't get control of that wild and furious one. And I read that as a college student in the first part of my ministry, and it struck me as I did so that what Barclay or Plato was saying is that the docile, calm one is good, but the wild and furious one is bad. Look out for those extreme emotions. But that was a misinterpretation of Plato. Later, I actually ended up reading uh, Plato's Phaedra, and he points this out that they both have their strengths and they both have their weaknesses. Uh, you know, the one horse may have calm and be calm and tame and docile, but calm won't win the race. Tame won't get you to the finish line. Docile won't achieve anything worth achieving. Now, I'm nervous about this illustration because it's about a Union general, and I know Missouri was in the s South, so be patient with me here. But there was a Union general who after the war became the missionary governor. I'm not making that word up. He was called the missionary governor of the missionary territory of Wyoming. They weren't a state yet. And he was a classics major and he knew philosophy. He was a very well-educated man. And he came down uh, to St. Louis and met with a friend of his, 
also a scholar, and they decided we need to write a book proving that Christianity is not true. And so this Union General said, I know Roman history and I know the New Testament period. I'll write on the New Testament. And the other guy said, I know the eastern part of the Mediterranean. I know archaeology. I'll refute Christianity from the basis of the Old Testament. And they agreed that exactly two years later they would meet in that same restaurant at that same table at that same hour. And they went off and they did their studies preparing to disprove Christianity. You'll be interested to know that exactly two years later they did come back, but the Union General is very chagrined because in the intervening two years, reading the New Testament, he had been converted. As he read that, he believed Jesus did rise from the dead, and the miracles are true, and people's lives are changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, he shouldn't have been quite as chagrined as maybe he was because as they talked, he discovered the other fellow also had been converted to Christianity, but from reading the Old Testament. They did not write their book. But this Union General, this territory governor, also the first governor of the state of Wyoming, went on to write the number two bestseller of the 19th century. Number one was um, uh, uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, but number two for the century was Ben-Hur by General Lew Wallace. It's a wonderful story. And there's a moment that speaks exactly to the passions. Of course, a general is going to have passion because if you want to win a war, you've got to have passion. And he has a scene in there where Ben-Hur goes out and he speaks to the horses, in this case, four horses, the night before the big chariot race, and he's stroking their muzzles and he's talking, and you horse, you will do this. He says to the calm, docile one, you are going to take us into the turn. You're on the outside, because when we make that turn, we don't want to run off and crash into the stands. You've got to be under control, and we're going to make this turn. He speaks to the middle two, and he comes to the fourth one, the wild and furious ones, and he says to this horse, you will win the race for us because you have the strength and the enthusiasm and the excitement. You will win the race. And that's the way it is in life. That the passions that are powerful in us are what's going to make us successful in life as family members, as church members, as citizens, as business folk. It is the passions that get things done. F.F. Bruce writes of St. Paul, he was, quote, a passionate man, captive to God. Passionate, but under control, captive to God. Blaise Pascal, one of my favorite philosophers, says of the Christian philosopher that he is a man with a mind on fire. A mind, you think, well, that's under control, but on fire. And Blaise Pascal had a coat and when he died, his sister Jacqueline uh, fixed it up. I find this touching. She just didn't give it away to the poor, but she fixed it up. She sold the, sewed the holes. She put buttons back off. If they had. And this was a coat he wore almost every day. And she found a piece of paper under, right above his heart. And so she unstitched it, and she pulled out the piece of paper. And this is what it said, November 23rd, 1654. And this is still quoting. From about half past ten in the evening until half past twelve, fire, 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 joy, joy, joy. 
The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, not the God of the philosophers and the savants. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. He was recording the story of his conversion. And that passion led him for the rest of his life to write some of the finest Christian work on theology ever written. What does a consecrated person look like? What does consecrated passion look like? Well, there's Jeremiah, there's Paul, there's Pascal, C.S. Lewis, and there's Jesus. Was Jesus a passionate person? You know, you may have been taught the falsehood, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, gentle as a little child. But Jesus was passionate. He writes, John writes in his gospel, putting these words into the mouth of Jesus, the zeal for your house has eaten me up. Or again, the author of Hebrews writes, Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus was passionate, and he was energized by the joy that he was God's son and was destined for great things, as you and I are destined for great things. Jesus commended this passion to us in today's gospel reading. Did you catch it? Mark chapter 9, he says, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Now, the passion he's appealing to is ambition. Is ambition a good thing? If it is consecrated for the right purposes. And Jesus says, be ambitious, but be ambitious for that. Be ambitious to be unimportant and to be a servant. He takes the ladder of ambition and he simply inverts it and says, you want to go to this low place. That is something to be ambitious for. I think of my own calling to the ministry. Almost 50 years ago, next summer I think, it is. I was working for a paint factory in Wichita, Kansas. It was owned by our family. I was being prepared to take it over. But I was also doing youth ministry for that summer. I was in charge of the games. I was in charge of the music. I was in charge of the Bible study. We did a canoe trip here on the current river uh, as part of that youth group. And I spent all my time passionately thinking about how can I make this better for the kids? A better game, a better song, a better community here together. Now, it was during this time I was memorizing some scripture, and I came to a new verse to memorize, Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9. It's a fascinating chapter we'll talk about some other day. But you come to verse 9, and Jeremiah says this, But if I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is, as it were, fire in my bones, and I am tired of holding it, and I cannot. And I pulled out of the farm, and I had not driven one mile, but God had called me to the ministry. Because I had fire in my bones to speak to young people about Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis puts it like this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum 
because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea, we are too easily pleased. I was delighted this morning talking to one of our acolytes to find out his name was Patrick, one of my favorite saints. So I'm changing my closing illustration uh, to St. Patrick, not an educated man, not really even an eloquent man but a passionate man who converted an entire nation, the only nation in world history that was converted without arms or armies. And on one occasion, he had done baptisms, and they had a three-day party. It was on Easter, and they had a three-day party. And then in their baptismal white gowns, these people walked to the nearby village where they had come from. They'd come up to be baptized at another place. They were returning home. And this stinking Christian businessman named Cotticus kidnapped all these people. They, his people raped the women, and then they sold all of them into slavery. And Patrick was furious. He was angry, but it was a consecrated anger. And he went and he confronted the bishops in Britain and said, that's wrong, this man should be excommunicated till the slaves are returned, and he fought against it. And of course, those bishops, the cowards, got money from Cotticus, so they said, hey, you know, not our problem, we're not going to worry about it. And he kept pushing, so finally they began to denounce and tell falsehoods about Patrick, and that's when he wrote his autobiography defending his ministry. He was in a rage, but a righteous rage, about what was being done. It was a passion of anger which was consecrated to the truth of the gospel and the protection of God's people. I pray that we in our passions might offer them to God. Here we offer and present unto the Lord ourselves, our souls, and that includes our passions. Let us offer God our passions to be used for his purpose. Let us pray. O God, who planted in your Son Jesus zeal to serve, grant us a like passion and zeal that whether in prayer or service or friendship or study, we may follow with joy your Son, Jesus, in the way that leads to eternal life. Amen.